you'll turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 3. Right, we are hitting some of the highlights here as we go through the big story of the Bible. And uh, just what I'm, my plan is to do a series of devotionals in, our, in my weekly emails um, talking about Jacob, so picking up on some of the things we missed because the story of Jacob's really helpful. You can really see the, the story of the gospel there. Um, but Exodus is continuing the story that Genesis began. Uh, in, in the original language, there's a, a letter that connects stories. That, that's, how the, that's how the book of Hebrews be, or the book of Exodus begins. It's with and. And then here are the names, right? It's, it's just continuing the story. And so we are picking up where uh, there was a pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. He came into power, they're afraid, and now the, the multitude that is the Hebrew people, they are enslaved and miserable. And so God, we're going to look at the, the first four chapters and do an overview here this morning as we see God calling Moses to bring Israel out of slavery. So let's, let's read chapter 3, the first 15 verses, and then uh, we're going to read seven verses of chapter 4, uh, verses 10 to 17. This is the word of our God. It says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. <clears throat> Why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, 
The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And then chapter 4, verse 10, continuing Moses' objections here. It says, But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, as you shall, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. And this is the reading of God's word. It is true and trustworthy. He speaks to us today in love. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for this great promise that you are the God who is with us, that you hear our groanings, you see our troubles, you know our sufferings. So Holy Spirit, come this morning and show us how Christ has purchased these realities for us, that we might grow in our knowledge of you and our love of those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the Oscar-winning film, uh, the, the King's Speech, uh, you're shown the true story of, uh, I get his, all his names right, Albert Frederick Arthur George, right? He had four names. Uh, he was the man who became King George VI of England just before World War II started. And the only reason Albert became king is because his older brother, Edward, did something that nobody had done, I think, since, <laughs> up to that point. He gave up the throne in order to marry an American, an American divorcee. And so Albert never expected to rule, much less have that pressure fall on him. And then to add to the weight of, of the call now on Albert's life, he had a stutter, a stammer. He couldn't speak well. And the problem was World War II was fast approaching, Adolf Hitler was rising, and Nazi Germany was growing in strength, and he was going to have to repeatedly speak to the nation about what was happening. He was to be the, the, the mouthpiece and the spokesperson for all of England, right? And of course, the, the drama is he found help from a, a speech therapist, and he was able, despite his weakness, uh, to lead his people through this horrific time. But it's interesting, his story starts much like the story of Moses, is I see the call to lead your people, <laughs> to lead a group of people, I can't do this. Right? I don't feel qualified for this. And that's why we're here with Moses. He's sent to be God's mouthpiece to go confront one of the greatest military and political powers of the day, Egypt, to say, let God's people go. And Moses had the audacity of saying, send someone else. Right. Sound familiar? Right. Anyone who's ever heard anything God has told them to do, and you say, me? Don't you know what I'm like, what I'm able to do, and all my failures, and all my weaknesses? And I could never stand up and 
and lead and speak. I mean, one of the things I hear all the time is, I don't want your job because you have to talk every week in front of people. Right? That's just one part of God's call, to talk about him to others. I mean, there are so many parts of the Christian life right, that, God, that we say, God, I don't know if I can do this because the suffering is too great. Or we say, I just can't forgive because the hurt is too great. We say, I can't lead because I know my faults and failures. We say, I can't pray because I just don't know what to say. Um, I'm too weak. And so, as we just read, we need to see what Moses saw because Moses was, as as we heard earlier, right? Moses has all kinds of glory and fame for his faithfulness as God worked with him and came alongside him in his weakness to equip him for the call that God put on him. We need to see the God who is sufficient for our weakness. And so let's look at this these, the story of Exodus here. We need to see the Lord who sees us. We need to see the Lord who prepares us for the work he calls us. And then the Lord who sends us a, a savior, a mediator. And so the Lord who sees, you've got to turn back to chapter 1. Right, if you remember the story of Exodus, it's picking up, this is what, 400 years after Abraham. Genesis 15 told us this was going to happen. But Abraham's family grew. He had Isaac. Uh, Isaac had Jacob and Esau. Jacob, the blessing passed to him. Jacob had 12 sons. They end up in Egypt, and their family, it says, were blessed. They're fruitful, multiply. They have filled the land of Egypt. Um, And then a new pharaoh arises, someone who does not remember the story of Joseph, remembering how God used this Hebrew to save the nations, to save Egypt. And because they're terrified, they, they oppress, they enslave. It says they ruthlessly oppress. They, they, they make their lives bitter with hard service. And we're going to read later in chapter 2, like, there's physical violence. They're beating them if they don't measure up. I mean, these are cruel masters. And if that weren't dark enough, the king of Egypt, afraid, gives that, that terrifying command that, okay, there's too, many, there's too many Jews among us. They're going to rise up and take over. Let's kill all the firstborn. Let's kill all the sons. And so he commands these Hebrew midwives that you have to kill any sons that are born to these Hebrew women. And of course, the heroes of the story, they stand up against evil and, say, and, and fudge it, right? They, they lie and say, well, by the time we get there, the women have already had their babies and, and hidden them. And so then the, the command comes back, just throw the baby boys into the river. Let every daughter live. And so here's the, the story of Exodus where it begins. God's people are trapped, enslaved, or in bondage, if you will, to death and misery. They have a cruel master. And they're groaning, they're crying out for help and rescue. And I know when we, you start to read through the story of Exodus, it's tempting to say, I want to be like Moses. How do, I, how do I become like Moses? And it's the wrong question to start with. <laughs> we can learn from Moses' faith, and we will here in a few moments. But the better question is, is why did God have to send someone like Moses to Exodus to set God's people free? They needed 
a mediator, a, a representative. See, Israel is enslaved to death. They're trapped by suffering. They're oppressed by tyranny of this cruel Pharaoh. And according to the Bible, we are not like Moses first. We are like Israel. It's what it's like to be human. In bondage to death and suffering. Suffering under the tyranny of a cruel master. Evil. Sin. Right? We'll, we'll talk about this a little bit more next week as we look at the plagues and the Passover. Um, as we look specifically at Israel's also in bondage to their own sin. Right? But the story of Exodus in the beginning is saying, look at how God sees, hears, and knows the suffering of his people. Right? I mean, they are sinners for sure. But this is, this is a story first and foremost, at least in the beginning here, from what we know in chapters 1 through 4, they are suffering. They're in pain. Life is not what they want it to be by any means. I mean, they are groaning and well aware of how bad this is, crying out for help. That's chapter 2, verse 23. You can look at it. Right? During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. The cry for rescue came from, the rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. God knew. Right. And then you can add verse 7 of chapter 3 when the Lord says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up to that good and broad land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And so put this in perspective here, right? Do you know the Lord of the Exodus, the Lord who sees your affliction, who hears your crying, who hears your groaning, who promises to come down and rescue you from this land of death and misery. <laughs> right. and while Pastor Jim was praying, one of, one of my kids just whispered in my, I don't know if it was a whisper because he's not quiet, but he says, I can't wait for the new world. I have no idea where that came from, what he was thinking about, but it's you know, like the Israelites, I cannot wait for the good land where the Lord's going to take me because this life is hard. Right. So do you know the Lord who sees you? Right. Seeing is no small thing. Right. It's so, it seems so elementary, so basic, but yet this is how love works. It's love always begins with looking. I'm sure we've talked about this before. Right? To come alongside someone, to become acquainted with their grief, to become acquainted with their sorrows, right? you have to see them. Love begins with seeing someone in their suffering. That's how compassion is stirred. That's what moves you to come alongside them, to start to carry their burdens, to work towards rescue and deliverance as the Lord is going to do. It moves you to get involved. Right? This is who the Lord is. He, he is the one who sees people, sees their suffering, and is, has the audacity to say, I know your suffering. Right? It's an intimate knowing. 
I mean, Luke chapter 7 is probably one of the best and clearest examples of how love works through seeing and how love begins with seeing. It's when Jesus is traveling with a great crowd, a multitude of people. I don't know if it's a thousand people or a couple thousand. He's got a fan club that's with him. And they're traveling and they come outside this village of Nain at the same time as a funeral procession coming out of the town. And so there's another crowd of people. And this crowd is mourning, wailing. It's the funeral for a widow's only son. And out of all that mass of humanity coming to collide, what does it say about Jesus in chapter 7, verse 13? When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. He saw her. I mean, you think about that. There are hundreds of people, if not more than a thousand. Two different crowds coming to noise. You have this loud weeping and wailing, which would be common in an ancient Near East funeral. Uh, very different than our funerals. They, they would emote very loudly. As well as just the noise of on the excitement of people being with Jesus. Right? And in that moment, out of the crowd... Everybody who was close to Jesus, what they remembered was the way Jesus looked. He saw. Because love begins with looking. Jesus picked her out of the crowd, saw her slavery to suffering, to death, the loss of her only son. It was her future, and he had compassion. And he he touches the, the funeral beer, and he raises her from the dead, and then carries the son and gives her the son back to her mom, his mom. It's an astonishing act of love that zeroes in on one particular person's suffering. You have the same pattern here because Jesus is the Lord of the Exodus. Right? God sees his people's suffering. He hears their cries. He's aware of their pain. He remembers his promise to rescue them from slavery that he gave to Abraham. And it says he comes down to deliver. But it all begins with the looking of love. Right? So I don't know what, you're, what suffering you're going through that you're not talking about, but I mean, the, the hope in this passage is God knows, God sees, and God hears. And he will come down to be with you. Right? So, chapter 2 here, what is, how does God respond when he sees the suffering and slavery of his people? He calls a mediator. He calls Moses, to someone who will follow God's commands to rescue them from slavery. And that's point two here. As we look at the Lord who prepared Moses for the call. All right, if you look at Moses in chapter two, we get his backstory here. The first thing you learn about Moses is that his parents are Levites. They don't even get names here, which means they want you to focus on his particular family He comes from a family of priests. Why? Because that's what he's going to do. right? That's Moses' job. He's going to represent God to the people and the people to God. He's going to stand in the gap for God's people. He's also going to be a prophet. He's going to speak to the people as if God. But all in all, Moses, at this stage in the story, he is called uh, to mediate God's presence for the people. And so you have this portrait of this Levite baby boy who was born under a sentence of death by order of the king of Egypt. 
It's a dark beginning. His mother loves him. She, she builds him a little boat, a basket out of reeds, covers it with bitumen and pitch, and she, it's the famous story. She puts him in the river down the Nile to have him be rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. And what's really interesting as you look at the story, it's actually called an ark. It's the same word. Right? The same word to describe the boat that God used to save Noah. And so this is just something to go take a long walk and say, why does, how are those stories connected? Right? Maybe it's like Noah, perhaps this, one, this is the one who will lead us to rest. Right? That was the excitement with Noah. Or maybe it's supposed to think uh, God will save Moses and his family from the waters of death and judgment, which is exactly what happens. But what Moses' name means, I drew him out of the water. Right? God protected him. And then you go on and say, if God's going to work through Moses and his family, who is his family? And that's the tension of the story of Moses. Who is his family? Is he Egyptian or is he Hebrew? Because in an Egyptian, his name just means um, son of. Which is another way of saying we don't know who his daddy is. Right? He grew up as a kid in Egypt with just a name, Moses. Nobody knows who it is. This is one of the commentators pointed out. Like you, you, you know, the name Moses would be attached to someone else, like Thompson, son of Tom. Right, Moses was the way they said that. Well, M Moses grew up in a palace. He was given an Egyptian education, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He was comfortable. He was not enslaved. R in reality, he was unable to sympathize with his own people, the Hebrews. And so you get down into verse 11. Moses had grown up and he went out to his people. And he looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people, one of his family. You can, it's one of his brothers. Right? This is family language. He's now identifying with God's people. And he looks this way and that, makes sure nobody's watching, and he strikes the, man, the Egyptian down, he kills him, and tries to bury the body in the sand. And then the next day, Moses... Uh, sees two Hebrews fighting, and he tries to intervene and says, why are you fighting? Why are you striking your companion? And, and one of his brothers says, who made you prince and judge over us? Are you going to kill us like you did the Egyptian? Right. And that's when Moses panics, realizes, oh no, the Pharaoh's going to find out what I've done. And he goes off into exile, into Midian, fleeing for his life where he spends the next 40 years as a foreigner trapped in a foreign land. Right. And so, here's the point. What is God doing here with Moses? Why is Moses' life on a 40-year detour through Midian? And the answer is, Moses has to be prepared for the call that God is going to put on him. Because how can you know the sufferings of God's people if you've spent your whole life in an Egyptian palace. See, Moses has to learn weakness. God is preparing Moses for the mission. He just doesn't know it. Right? He went 40 years of not knowing what God was up to. Right? He had to get a taste of what it's like to be a foreigner trapped in a foreign land, a taste of bitterness, hard labor. He's now a shepherd for his father-in-law's sheep. Trapped. I imagine if you're Moses, right, I tried. I tried to rescue my people. It failed. 
my life is now spent in obscurity in the desert. This is where I'm going to live and die. Had to feel like a dead end. Right, and one commentator points this out, that before Moses experienced this detour through Midian, Moses lacked two essential qualities that God requires of all of his servants, including us. Empathy and humility. And Moses had to learn both of these while in the barren desert of Midian. Right? So Moses had to learn empathy. Think about it. Or sympathy or compassion. He had to learn, in order to be God's representative, what it was like to, to suffer as the people he's going to rescue have suffered. I mean, some of the best training for ministry in God's kingdom, in Christ's church, I don't like to say it out loud, but it is, it's suffering. Because it teaches you empathy and sympathy. It prepares you to be able to see someone and have your heart go out to them the way Jesus sees people and has his heart go out to them. To go be acquainted with grief because you're acquainted with grief. Uh, to, to listen to people groan because you know what it's like to groan. Right? I mean, there are people in your world and in my world that God is calling you to be sympathetic towards and training you to see them the way God sees them. And the way he's training you is, is through the current suffering you're going through. And you may not even know who those people are yet. That when they say, I've gone through this, you can say, me too. Here's how the Lord helped me. See, Moses is being trained to sympathize with those in slavery and bondage to sin and suffering and death. Moses also had to learn humility. Right? He was an Egyptian prince. It's hard to sympathize with slaves. And so it's fair to say, I think, yeah, that Moses, in pursuit of justice for his brothers, when he rose up in anger and struck down the Egyptian, uh, he was absolutely sinning, taking a life that he should not have taken. I mean, at minimum, he's, he's at least attempting to rescue his family members without any mention of God's help or intervention. You hear the language of shame, he hides the body. Right? This isn't like a, a violent revolution, this is a, a hidden rebellion. He doesn't want to be seen killing this person. And so now he, in Egypt, he became a leader who failed publicly and everyone knew it. He had to learn humility. Right? When they say, who made you a prince and judge over us? Why should we listen to you? God's going to go teach him. <laughs> teach him humility, the humility of not being a, not being a prince, but being a servant out in the desert, caring for someone else's sheep. Right? It's, a, it's a, a lowly, unappreciated job. Right? So Moses is out there stuck in life's detour, learning empathy and humility, learning to, to serve. And so where do you feel like you're trapped? In a dead end or a detour? These are two things the Lord is always at work teaching his servants. Humility and sympathy. Equipping you to love. Because what happens is, is you learn sympathy and you learn empathy. It's also teaching you humility at the same time because all of a sudden as you, your heart goes out to someone else, your eyes are no longer on yourself and your own suffering. And you say, how can I serve? How can I love? How can I come alongside you? How can I cry out for help with you? 
Learning humility. Now, now we're at a chapter three here. How does the Lord recruit Moses into this call to lead God's people out of slavery? And this is how you get to the Lord who sends, sends a deliverer, sends a servant, or a mediator. And we're at the burning bush. All right, Moses is out keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro. And he's up on a mountain, the mountain of God, and all of a sudden he sees a bush on fire, and it's burning, yet not consumed. And so Moses says, well, I'm going to go turn aside and see. He takes a detour to, in the midst of his detour to go see this bush. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, that's when he has this dramatic spiritual experience as the Lord calls to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. He said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. For I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses fell on, hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, what does God doing here. He's, he's got to get Moses' attention. He's got to convince him to go on this mission to go back to the place of shame, go back to the place of failure, and go back to, to rescue the people that didn't want to be rescued by him. Right? And he says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. It's a, it's a big call. Go shepherd God's sheep and rescue them from this just whole uh, multitude of violent animals. <laughs> Go do something you can never do by your own power and strength. That's the call. And what's Moses' reaction? Who in the world am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Egypt? Who am I? How in the world could so I do something like that? And then God's promise is beautiful. He says, but I will be with you. Go. I'll be with you. Right? And then this is really important because the next question is, if I come to the people of Israel, Moses is full of objections here. If I come and they say, the God of your fathers has sent me, and they say, what is his name? What should I say? And God says, well, tell them, I am who I am. And say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. Now, who is this God who is talking to Moses from the burning bush? What does it mean for God to be the I am? I know part of this is God just saying, I am. I exist. I have being. Um, the Westminster Catech, Shorter Catechism, who is God? He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being. Right? He just is. He's dependent on no one. He's dependent on nothing. Uh, theologians often use this passage to say, describe God's aseity or his self-sufficiency or the reality that God needs no one because he just always is and always will be and always has been. I am. Right? Which is absolutely humbling. I mean, Moses is afraid of this God. It's, this isn't a God that you say, I want you to be my servant. This is the God who says, hey, you, you are now mine, now go. He's dependent on no one. He just is. But I think there's a lot more to this name and this promise in the context because there's a specific promise given over and over again with this name, I am, Yahweh. Because right? what do 
God's people need to hear when they're in slavery and languishing and suffering. What does Moses need to hear as someone being called to do something he's not able to do by his own power? And what do you and I need to hear over and over and over again? Does God say, I am with you? It's the promise of presence wrapped up in God's name. Right? The Yahweh, the great I am, the God who will be, promises to be with his people. Yahweh. I mean, that's a beautiful statement that I will be with you and the gift is Moses to you and to all my people is my being, which comes with that forever presence. It's the heart of the covenant that we're going to see and hear. Uh, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will walk among you. Right? Which changes everything. Right? Moses, you can do this because you're not alone. Uh, you can come through slavery and suffering because you're not alone. Uh, Pastor John Newton, uh, the Amazing Grace author, he, he wrote lots of really helpful pastoral letters. And he talks about this this hope and help that comes just by having God be present as the I am. Right? He, he writes this, that the grace of God is as necessary to create a right temper uh, as on the breaking of a china plate as well as during the death of an only son. Right? In other words, he's saying God's grace and God's presence is essential to help us deal with life when we're dragged on a detour, whether it's something as, mind, as small as your favorite plate breaking or as traumatic and awful as the death of a son, a loved one, right? Because we all have natural tendencies. When life doesn't go our way, how do you react? We groan, we complain, we cry. Maybe you jump up and down and throw a temper tantrum. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Or you're, you're screaming words that you wouldn't say in church. And what Pastor Newton is saying and what God is saying to Moses, do you know the Lord? I am. The God of the burning bush is with you. Wouldn't that not change that particular moment and every moment going forward? The one who loves you with this forever love who sees your suffering. I mean, right, we're in the ideal world. Wouldn't that change how you react if you know God is with you and promised to provide? See, apart from the Lord, we can't do anything. And he says, I will be with you. And Moses, is a, he's so human here. This is what's so great about Moses is you can appreciate his reluctance because he's like us. Right? He has God saying, I am, and he has the visual image of the burning bush right in front of him, speaking to him. He's still skeptical that God's going to use him to lead the people out of Egypt. And he says, they aren't going to listen to me or believe Listen to my voice or believe me. And that's the beginning of chapter 4. He's still doubting. And so God equips him with two signs of the present, of God's presence, and turns a, Moses learns how to turn his staff into a serpent and then to pick the serpent up and it turns back into a staff and it's that famous, he puts his hand into the, his jacket, or robe, I should say, <laughs> and it comes out leprous and he puts it back in and it comes out clean, showing that, that God has the power, has power. 
But even that's not enough. How do I know you'll be with me? And you, God, I'm not eloquent. That's verse 10 of chapter 4. I can't talk. I'm slow of speech or tongue. And most people, especially the old commentators, argue that Moses had a speech impediment of some sort, a stutter. Right, something that would be embarrassing if you've got to go give a speech to the most powerful individual in the world. You want to have all your, your I's dotted and your T's crossed, and he he's can't even get a sentence out. He's humiliated. Right? He's ashamed. And so the Lord says, well, who made the mouth? <laughs> who makes people mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Therefore go, I will tell you what to speak. I'll be with your mouth. It can't get much more close. Right? I'll be with you and I'm going to be with your mouth. I'm going to be with every part of you to do what I've called you to do. <laughs> Verse 13, send someone else. And then the anger of the Lord kindled against Moses. Now this is the first time in the story so far that we have heard of God getting angry. It's the first time in the scriptures. It's not until Moses says no. Send someone else. Right? He doesn't get angry. Right? We don't get that, that language of anger. It's not with Adam and Eve and that betrayal. You don't hear it with Noah and the flood, interestingly enough. Or Jacob's continual scheming and lying and deceiving. Or the injustice done to Joseph. Now, the first time the Lord's nostrils burn hot, that's the actual language. The first time the Lord gets angry, it's because Moses says, send someone else. And then God says, in anger, fine, take Aaron. He can talk. And that was enough. <laughs> that overcame his doubt. He goes back to Egypt, sent by the Lord who promised to be with him and has equipped him for the mission ahead. So, there's the story thus far. Let's tie all this together. What is this telling us what is the story of Exodus about for us as Christians? And what hope is there for us in our slavery to death and suffering? And the answer is here in chapter 3. There's a whole other person we haven't talked about yet. It's the angel of the Lord. This person who is speaking from the burning bush, but who is different from the Lord, but then all of a sudden it speaks as the Lord. He speaks as the Lord. Right? Isn't that interesting? Right? The one coming alongside, sending Moses on this mission, he's, he's the angel of the Lord. It says it calls out from the burning bush, but then all of a sudden, from the rest of the time, it's the Lord himself speaking. Right? That's probably how Moses survives the burning hot anger of God, because he has the angel of the Lord mediating God's presence for him in the bush. This God who's able to draw near, near to moral failures, to be with them, but without destroying them. And I found this, this commentator helpful, Alec Mortier, and he writes, there is only one other person in the Bible who is both identical with, yet distinct from the Lord. Only one other person who doesn't abandon the full essence or prerogatives of being divine nor does he diminish any part of divine holiness, and yet somehow is able to accommodate himself to be in the presence of sinners. The same person who at the same time is able to affirm the wrath of God 
and is also a beautiful display of God's mercy. So you can only understand the angel of the Lord, can only be appreciated when you understand him as a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Moses is being sent by a pre-incarnate, not yet come to earth, Jesus. It's pretty amazing. I mean, that's what Jesus would say of himself before Abraham was, I am. And where does that voice, I am, come from? Come from the burning bush. And so, tie all this together. The Exodus is giving us a language to describe the gospel of what God has done for us in Jesus. That our Father in heaven has seen our trouble. He has heard our groaning. He has remembered his covenant. He knows our sufferings. And he draws near to us through a better Moses, through a better mediator. Right? If you got a foretaste of this burning bush person meeting God's presence, but for us it's Jesus Christ. We are given the Lord of the burning bush. Right? Compare the story of Moses and Jesus. Who else do you know was born under a sentence of death because of a cruel and oppressive king? Because who has to flee to a foreign land, right? whose whole life is training him to, to know your sufferings, to know to suffer in every way you have suffered yet without sin, uh, to know, to learn humility, the humility that can only come through obedience while suffering. Right. See, in Jesus Christ, we have the Lord of the burning bush who became human, God's own son, that, that, that we have our Father in heaven says, Jesus, I'm the Messiah, I'm sending you someone better than Moses, because Jesus didn't say, send someone else. He said, here I am, Lord, send me. We have a better than reluctant deliverer. We have Jesus himself. Right? Unlike Moses, there was no hesitation. He said, Father, not my will be done, but yours. Right? See, Jesus is the better Moses, our willing servant, our mediator, the one who mediates God's presence for us who mediates God's fiery burning presence by taking God's justice for us on the cross. And that is our hope. And he was resurrected so that we would know Yahweh. I am. I will be with you. I promise to never leave nor forsake you. This is the gospel, that Jesus comes in weakness, that he might sympathize with us in weakness. But he does so for sinners who are enslaved to suffering and death so that we would know the Lord. And now, on the other side of the cross, this is where we stand, King Jesus says to you and I, as those who have been set free from slavery to sin and death, I have been preparing you all along to love those around you, to equip you to serve through suffering, through your failures, through your weakness. I want you to go. I will be with you. I'm sending you my helper. Because my power and my presence and my grace are sufficient for you and for your weaknesses. Will you go? Will you go see who to love? Go look. Right? I love the, the hymn, Praise to the Lord Almighty, right? Praise to the Lord who prospers your work and defends you, who from the heavens the streams of mercy does send thee. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do, who 
with his love does befriend thee. Ponder anew what the Lord can do when you have a God who sympathizes with you in your weakness and gives you help to do the call <laughs> to, call, to, to love and serve your neighbors. Right? I'm not making this up. It's in the New Testament everywhere, right? Galatians 5, which is always using Exodus, it's constantly using Exodus language. It says, you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in that one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, who is the Lord calling you to see, calling you to love, the way Christ has seen and set his love on you and set you free? You say, it's dangerous, it's scary, it's frightening. You're called to compare that to what Christ has done. He's taken away fear of death. What's the worst thing that will happen to you when you have the promise of God's permanent presence? I'll end with this quote from a a pastor, former NFL player. This guy's name is Derwin Gray. He's he's now a pastor in North Carolina. And he actually met Jesus in the locker room as an NFL player. And as he was becoming a Christian and he became more vocal about his faith, uh, he was asked to go to a conference, a youth conference somewhere, and publicly speak for the first time. And like everybody who's ever been called to do what we do every week, it's terrifying, <laughs> right? Public speaking is on like the list of everybody's worst fear as human beings. And so he said, I was just in the shower like crying, terrified, not, not wanting to go at all. And what interrupted his own self-obsession was this one thought, probably instigated by the Holy Spirit here. He said, if God can raise his son from the dead you can go talk about me <laughs> because I will be with you. And that, that's the promise we get. Let's pray. And Father, you know our sufferings. You see, you hear us. And I pray that we would know you as the God who is with us and that you, would, you really would use us as training uh, to, to love those around us. So we thank you for Jesus, the better Moses, uh, who knows us better than we know ourselves who comes and promises to be with us and equip us for for this mission of love that you are sending us on. So bless Hope Church that we might be uh, an ambassadors of your love, uh, ready and willing to comfort those with the affliction, or to comfort others in their affliction with the comfort we have received. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.